0: Welcome to Base Camp, where men join together to seek deeper understanding of authentic menhood and apply principles from God's Word to our daily lives. If you're looking for the next level in men's ministry, join us and experience a life of Christian fellowship with men sold out for our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. May God be praised. Okay, uh, I just want to share with you guys, um, on April 28th, um, I'm driving around, I'm like trying to figure out what to talk about with this. And you know, uh, this is part, this is the confession portion of the, of the instruction. And and the Lord was like, man, you know, maybe uh, you don't go up there and think that you're teaching somebody as much as you're sharing with them, you know, what I'm telling you. He said, why don't you start putting this stuff into practice and then go share with them whether or not it works or not. And that's really what this is. So in Acts 27, 28, really it is, I think uh, Richard Dick was like, there's no place like Rome. There's no place like Rome. How did Paul get to Rome? That's what we're talking about today. Okay, but it's part of that. I'm looking at this, and there's a lot of historical data here, right? But what I realize is that in the process of this, Acts 27, really from Acts 20 all the way to 28 to the end of the book, God uses our circumstances as logistics to transport us to decisive appointments. Then he uses our circumstances as tools to train and test our faith, our trust in him on the way to and during these decisive appointments. And then finally, he uses those same circumstances to give us a testimony when we arrive there that validates the gospel. The gospel, my friends, doesn't change. Our testimony about the gospel is the only thing that will change, that validates it good story, right? It should sound familiar, right? Okay, the story arc should sound really familiar right here. Every one of these epic stories, we're talking about Luke Skywalker, we're talking about Star Wars or Lord of the Rings or Chronicles of Narnia. The reason that we love these kind of stories is because you have a pretty simple person, pretty kind of a low person, right, or people that are grabbed and feel like they're pulled along by an outside force, more powerful than themselves, that they're set on a path toward destiny right and here's the crazy part in route to that ultimate destiny that culminating event there's a series of decisive appointments and they're trained literally they're trained or changed or tested by these intermediate decisive appointments that prepares them in ways so that when they arrive at that culminating event they're a different person they're more prepared they're able to handle the decisive event that they were led to by an outside force There's no reason, there's every reason to understand why this is entertaining. It's lifted, literally, from the Bible. The story of Luke Skywalker and Darth Vader, George Lucas took that from King David and King Saul, literally, when you read the the story behind it, right? And then the Lord of the Rings, once again, borrowed from the Bible. Chronicles of Narnia, a direct direct, uh, lift from the Bible, right? There's a reason that we like these stories. So let's jump in. Okay, the, 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 the facts of the situation, uh, what exactly happened that led Paul all the way to Rome. We start all the way back in Acts chapter 20, where Paul's warned that imprisonment and trial awaits him if you go to Jerusalem. Then in Acts 21, he's urged by the other believers, don't go to Jerusalem. Sure enough, in Acts 21, there's a massive riot, and he is arrested in Jerusalem, just like they said would happen. Then in Acts 22 and 23, Paul gets a chance to testify before the Sanhedrin. Also in Acts 23, Paul, the Jewish leaders plot to assassinate Paul, okay? Then in Acts 24, he gets to testify before Felix. Acts 25 and 26, he gets to testify before Festus and Agrippa. Then we catch up to where we're at now, Acts 27 is the story of Paul's sea voyage to Rome, his shipwreck, which takes up the bulk of the chapter, his multi-week hurricane-level storm, this part of it, which is kind of crazy, in the Mediterranean, right? He shipwrecked on Malta, and then the final chapter, how does he get to Rome? And then imprisoned under house arrest in Rome for two years. Now, here's the best part. Nobody who reads this should doubt the historical veracity of it the dates and stuff like that, if even the, even the Jewish religious leaders who are the adversary of the gospel probably wouldn't argue with the historicity or the dates and the details of what Paul said. Now they may argue with some of the miracles, with Paul being bitten by a venomous snake and surviving or him predicting the uh, shipwreck or saving the lives of the crew. They might argue with that, but they're not gonna argue with the historicity of this. Even people today, even your modern historians have no reason to doubt this. There's plenty of ancillary uh, evidence to demonstrate the historicity of it. The place where they might uh, disagree or will disagree is what does it mean, right? Think about that. We read stuff in the newspaper every day. Everybody agrees what happened. What does it mean is something completely different. There's one point of view, right? And that's Satan and the Jewish leaders. I gotta tell you, when they sit down, they say, number one, if we have our way, killing Paul would be option A, preferred option. And they tried. I mean, they may even succeeded once. You know, they at least either, you know, got the crowd to stone Paul to death or stoned him to death. Either way, they were pretty close to success, Right? If they couldn't kill him, what's a good second option? Over four and a half years of imprisonment. If you gotta choose an option B, that's not a bad one, right? Get him off the field for a while. So I gotta tell you, from their perspective, it probably looks like Satan's winning, right? God's losing, Satan's winning, Paul shouldn't have gone to Jerusalem, he was told he'd be in prison there, and he was, okay? Paul's falsely accused, sound like anybody that we know? Right? of a crime they didn't commit, he's unfairly brutalized by a riotous mob, Paul's arrested in prison on false charges, even though the authorities say themselves that there's nothing really to hold him on, okay? then he must have looked like a clown for appealing to Caesar. They're like, man, if he hadn't done that, he wouldn't, you know, he wouldn't still be under arrest. And ultimately, he's uh, uh, shipwrecked on an island. Somebody has to think at this point, God's asleep at the switch or Paul's not the representative we thought he was and then he's imprisoned, trapped in Rome under Roman guard for two years. That sounds bad, right? It's not good. Who do you suppose would agree with him? My argument is we would. If I was there, if you were there and the believers that were there probably agreed. I think we got some proof. I think they said at every turn, oh my God, God's lost this one. Every time you watch the news, right, I literally hear it every single morning when we're praying. God lost that one. And then by the end of the call, we're like, wait a minute, that, that's, that can't be right. <laughs> right, we, we read how this ends, right? Okay, so God's not losing, but it sure looks like it. And from the, the believer's perspective, think about Mark 16. This wasn't the first time right? Mary Magdalene goes down there and says, Jesus rose from the dead. You remember he said he would? He did. And they're like, uh-uh. He, he probably did not, right? He didn't believe it. Then we go all the way to Acts 12. This is my fa- one of my most favorite stories, because it's Dallas, right? It's the prayer call. They're in there praying, Lord, please save Peter's life. Lord, please get him out of jail. And he's like, he's out of jail. God saved his life. They're like, uh-uh. <laughs> like, He's at the door of the people praying. And they don't believe that that God answered their prayer. Right? Then we look at Acts 21. There, the believer's the one. And and I think Alec did a great job last week driving the point home. Paul knew he was supposed to go to Jerusalem and ultimately to Rome. And it's the believer saying, don't do it. God's going to lose if you do this. Which is kind of a silly thing to to, to say. I say it all the time. I think it all the time. I'm sorry, I do. Paul's view is a little different. Paul's views is straight up jarhead, right? It does what it's told. I, you don't see a lot of overthinking. I mean, he gives some really heavy dissertations and stuff like that. But really, he, it seems like he says, hey, you're supposed to go to Jerusalem and ultimately Rome. okay. And all the steps, even the ones that seem like they're headed the wrong direction, you're like, I don't know, He's, he said to go here. He's clearly gonna get me there. Think of Abraham. Go to land, a land that I will show you. <laughs> Couldn't you just give me the zip code today? I can, I can Google it. Like I got little maps. I can come up with the best. He's like, shut your pie hole, right? Do what I tell you to do. Take the next step. I will get you there. Every step. There is no process loss, right? It's all heading toward the exact correct direction. And we see Paul saying this much, which is actually kind of funny because it sounds a little type A here. He's like, why are you uh, weeping and breaking my heart? I'm ready not only to be bound in Jerusalem, but to die for the name of Jesus, right? So this guy, he set. this is where I'm going, this is what I'm gonna do, and he's not gonna be dissuaded. God has another view of this. And it's not even a view, it is the view, right? It's the only comprehensive. He, Satan doesn't have a comprehensive view. There's things he doesn't know. God's the only one who got a comprehensive view, and his view of it is logistics. Because Paul is arrested and brutally uh, uh, brutalized by this mob and all these different things, Paul is able to testify in front of the Sanhedrin, which, again, I think we've missed who these guys are. If you took the Vatican, the President of the United States, the House of Representatives, the Senate, and the Supreme Court, put them all into one place in one body, then you've got the national, you've got the Sanhedrin. It's a relig- uh, religious, political uh, organization, right, that has an enormous amount of power. He testifies in front of them. Then God brings him in front of Felix, the fourth Roman procurator, which also helps us to date the time of this story, and his turnover, his change of command to Festus. I love Festus because it reminds me of Festivus. I don't know why. But anyway, Festus, the fifth Roman procurator, right? Then he is allowed to testify in front of Herod Agrippa II, Marcus uh, Julius Agrippa, the last of the Herodian dynasty. He's able to testify in front of Publius, the head man of the island of Malta, and ultimately to Caesar's household and Caesar. Now consider this. We don't have a position like this today. We have, yeah, president, absolutely most powerful man in the world, not in control of other countries. Caesar in control of the, of the known world at the time, the Western known world at the time. This is amazing. If Paul had asked for a meeting with all these different groups, right, to testify about Christ, what's the probability? We're going to put on our analyst hat. What's the probability these different bodies, diverse bodies from the, the state, local, national, and international level, would give him an audience? Let me think. zero, right? It ain't gonna happen. They're not gonna be like, who's this clown, right? But using God's logistics, he gets an audience with every single one of them all the way up to the top. What's more, this is the best part. God's PSD, his personal security detail. We look at Paul is under arrest. Okay, the only people who are trying to kill him at this point are the Jewish leaders, Right? What we tend to forget is this imprisonment ended in Rome with Paul being set free, set free for approximately two or more years. Then he's recaptured later on and later it's the Romans who will put him to death. Right now, if you look at all the years that Paul's been teaching, it's always been the Jewish leaders who are stirring up the Greeks or themselves trying to kill him. He's had a rough rough couple years. I mean, if he's not been beaten, or stoned to death, or nearly to death, or beaten with uh, sticks, put in dungeons, not jail. Let's remember, this is a terrible place, right? With a back superating, pussing, in the middle of the night, right? I gotta admit, I gotta gotta imagine that from Paul's perspective, he's like, these four and a half years weren't all that bad. I mean, he's in prison in, in palaces in Caesarea, and then in Roman guard in Rome. Think about this. God uses a terrible empire, a pagan empire, to protect Paul, to allow him to preach the gospel for four and a half years. God uses the Roman Empire, their logistical system, for one of Paul's most impactful missionary trips. Think about this, for Acts chapter 27, we see this great debate, this great dialogue, where you've got Paul on one side saying, well, we have gotta stay here in Fair Havens and Crete. If we go to Phoenix, shipwreck, terrible. Then you have the ship's owner and the ship's captain, who I would have thought would have been the decisive vote, saying, no, we need to go to Fair Phoenix. The person who decides is the centurion. What that tells us about this is that the Roman Empire had the authority to commandeer vessels, maritime vessels, in the Mediterranean at this time for the, for the emperor's, or for use in the emperor's name. Which means, indirectly, the emperor is responsible for uh, Paul's travel, it's like he's his little travel agent moving him across and can leverage any vessel to get him where God wants him to go. I got to tell you, it's kind of awesome, right? And as a result, Paul gets to witness to people in Sidon, in Myra, in Havens in Malta, in, in uh, Syracuse, Regium, uh, Puteoli, in Rome. He gets to witness to three different ships' crews, right? Okay? One of them got to see all the miracles, Right? He got to witness to soldiers, Roman soldiers, who were with him for years. Right? If you don't like Paul, imagine staying with him for years okay? and be at different times chained to him. God uses Paul's access, a shipwreck, to give him access to the island of Malta. God uses his house arrest. and this is an interesting way of saying it. For two whole years, Paul stays there in his own rented house, welcoming all who wanted to come and see him, and he proclaimed the kingdom of God and taught about Jesus Christ with boldness and without hindrance. If I had to describe all the chapters that up to this point, I would not describe Paul's ministry as without hindrance. And yet, God uses the Roman Empire to provide him an opportunity to undo the Roman Empire, the pagan system of the Roman Empire, for years, kind of awesome. The net effect of Paul's imprisonment is to transport him to key meetings and to keep him safe from those who wanted to kill him. Okay. But at the same time, God uses these same circumstances to train Paul's faith and to test it. And, I, and you know, this is a, a key phrase that, w- that gets brought up often on the prayer call. Faith that hasn't been tested cannot be trusted. And so what happens? Paul had to go to Jerusalem knowing that imprisonment awaited him. But he had to believe that God could use this for God's good. I gotta tell you, that's not easy. Paul had to believe that even a shipwreck, which if I was Paul, I'd be like, seriously? We could have just landed. Just blow us over there. I mean, there's an easy I believe there's an easier way to get us to go there. Couldn't you like Jedi mind trick them or something, you know? And then the ship's captain goes there? Nope, this is the way God wants it. And, it's, and again, it ends up being a key part of the story. But having believed God, this is the best part. An entire ship's crew, right? And the soldiers and the prisoners on there are saved physically. And I gotta believe spiritually to some degree, right? We don't have that data, but I gotta believe it. Paul is bitten by a venomous snake. I, I thought, man, Lord, why? why add that one? I don't know, Right? But he's bitten by a venomous snake, and he shakes it off. And I got to tell you, I've seen snakes. They don't typically latch on, right? At least the ones I've, I, I thank God I've never been bitten. But I've seen enough dumb jarheads playing with snakes, right? And they tend to bite and try to get out of there. Okay, Paul heals Publius's father, right? Then Paul is, spends two years under Roman guard, and each new test just adds to the testimony. And what are the results? So when Paul gets there, he's got a testimony because there can't be a testimony without the test, so Paul arrives there. You know his story went ahead of him. Think of all, all the military in here. Do you think that centurion didn't report it at every level up to his higher, uh, the higher people or Publius or all these different people aren't just constantly talking about it, so the story comes ahead of him? But also, think about Paul's demeanor in captivity. This is powerful to me, right? The centurion who's responsible for Paul's life. If Paul or any one of the prisoners escape, not only the centurion, but any of the Roman soldiers could be put to death for that that prisoner escaping. The centurion is either the biggest clown that's ever walked around or he saw something different in Paul, right? He lets him go on his own recognizance several times in this trip, number one. Number two, during the shipwreck, the safe bet, just kill all the prisoners, right? No one's going to give you a hard time. Ship, there's a shipwreck. We're afraid that they're going to escape. It's our life for their life. We'll just kill them all. We'll be done with it. But to save Paul's life, the centurion risks not only his, but all of his soldiers. I got, having been a, a company commander, that would be a tough sell for me. Risk my life and all my Marines for this guy? Something was different about Paul, the way he carried himself through these trials. The second Paul is when Paul is shipwrecked, right, he not only uh, survives a shipwreck, everybody comes ashore bitten by the snake and heals Publius's father, the entire island of Malta comes to Christianity as a result. Publius becomes the first archbishop of Malta. Malta stays Christian for 800 years until the Muslim conquests of 800 AD or the 800s AD when they take over the island and they depopulate it that's kind of amazing think about this his demeanor in captivity there in Rome gave him access to Caesar's household to the degree where we see in Philippians chapter 4 where he says give my greetings to uh, the believers in Caesar's household how did they come to Christ I think that's a good question. I think it's a logical assertion that Paul had something to do with that. So God uses Paul's circumstances to transport Paul to witness to numerous ports and three ships, crews, a group of soldiers, every level of government, including Caesar. Then he uses them to train and test Paul during imprisonment, trials before government leaders, riots, shipwreck, snakebite, ultimately to arrive with a testimony that validates the gospel. And certainly wins everybody on Malta, ultimately, as well as many in Caesar's household, probably some soldiers and sailors. That's not the first time this has happened. This is a pretty common story arc in the Bible, isn't it? Right? Joseph. God uses the logistics of betrayal, family betrayal, the worst kind, right? To transport him to to Egypt. Then he's sold into slavery right there, and then he works in the head of a a key Egyptian official. Then God uses a, a false charge of sexual assault, basically, to transport him into dungeon, to put him access, or give him access to high pharaonic officials, and ultimately to put him in front of Pharaoh. God uses these same circumstances to train and test Joseph during this trip, that he has to trust God. I mean, I gotta tell you, the The very first part, I would have been like, really? And we don't have any indication. The only indication that we have from Joseph is he was just told that his father, his mother, and his brothers would bow down before him, that he'd be important in his family. No indication that he had the idea that he's supposed to stand in front of Pharaoh. But he trusts God. And each new step, he had to say, well, we're we're still on track, right? Okay, and ultimately, he gives him a gospel, a testimony that validates God's sovereignty and promise to Israel right? A testimony in front of his father, a testimony in front of his brothers after his father dies. Powerful, right? God uses the same circumstances or similar to transport Daniel into captivity, to put him in charge as a key person in three different administrations in two of the world's most powerful empires, ultimately to reinforce God's sovereignty and control over events and to prophesy about the Messiah. There's one other person, that we should probably mention, right? Jesus, God uses him born to a virgin in a poor man's family. He's despised and rejected by mankind, right? Man of sorrows, familiar with suffering. He's trained and tested in every way, just like we are, but without failure. And he arrives with the testimony. Testimony the gospel, that if you believe, that if you accept his death, burial, and resurrection as payment for your sin, you can be saved. I gotta tell you, it's a great story, right? No wonder so many people have copied it. Here's my last part for you and for me. This is China Eastern Airlines flight MU-5735 in March of this year plunged to the earth from 29,000 feet, killed everybody on board. The picture next to it is a roller coaster. Now, if you were knocked out for whatever reason, and you came to with a blindfold on, and you're sitting in one of these two, the outside g-forces, the outside, the feeling, all the data that you're getting would tell you would be almost identical in a lot of ways. If the guy on your right said, nope, this my friend, is a roller coaster it's it's it is a little scary but it's an exi- it's part of an exciting ride that ends in you just having fun and enjoying yourself and you come out of this just fine guy on your left says nope it's a fiery crash we're all gonna die how you react how i react determines who i believe if i throw my hands up in the air ah, we all gonna die right then i think that this really is a fiery crash i believe the guy on my left if, on the other hand, I throw my hand in there, like, woo, this is amazing, can't believe, it. you know, I can't, see, can't wait to see what the next one's like, then that means I believe it's an amazing ride. If we, if God tells us he's in control through some really terrible things, how we react to that is gonna determine who we believe. Do we believe the world that Satan's winning, or do we believe God that he's in control? So God uses our circumstances to transport us to amazing places, decisive moments. He uses them as tools to train and test our faith, and to provide us with a testimony when we arrive that validates the gospel. How we react in the middle of this, gentlemen, will determine who we believe, him or Satan. So these are the questions that I like to leave, I'll be honest with you, leave you with and leave me with for the next whatever years I have remaining. But how has God used the circumstances of your life as logistics to move you to these moments? How has God used the circumstances of your life to t- as tools to train and test your faith? And what testimony did he give you for when you arrived at these key points? Lord, I just pray that you please be with us. I pray that you would guide our discussions. I pray that, that I wouldn't be like a man who uh, looks in the mirror and turns away and forgets what I look like a couple minutes later, that I'd be a hearer of the word and a doer of the word, that we would all. Lord, I pray that you would season our discussions so that we're ready to go out and make a difference and that we would trust you with all of our most difficult times. We ask all these things in Jesus' name, amen.